Good morning. It is seven minutes after 10 o'clock. Brian, you know, yesterday we had that conversation about uh, gambling on the, uh, the Super Bowl. Yes. Uh-huh. And we heard from a lot of Republicans who said, uh, and, and I know there were some, some libertarians in the mix, but the Republicans were saying the same thing. Uh, it's not up to the government to tell me whether or not I can bet or gamble. I wonder how many of them can apply that logic to the to the war on drugs. I'm, I'm I've got some audio. Uh, the guy that that uh, that um, really turned my mind around on the war on drugs. A guy named Peter Christ. Uh, when I was up in New York and broadcasting from there, he came on my program. Uh, he actually uh, called a week in advance, wanted to come on the program and debate me. Uh, my uh, 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 news guy and, and, uh, and, and sidekick there was uh, a good friend of mine, a police de- detective, um, Rod Carr, the late great, and he was. Uh, and we even had the prosecutor on from Onondaga County. And I said, sure. I love a good debate, and this guy chewed us up and spit us out. Not one argument held water. We've got some audio of a debate that he was in, or a, a discussion that he was in on a local TV station up in New York, and I will play this for you. If you're one of these uh, drug warriors, you're going to want to hear Peter Chris because he just uh, he just knocks it out of the ballpark. Uh, police captain in uh, Tonawanda, New York, um, Make some really great points. But right now, we're going to talk about the economy. We do that with our own Professor Murray Sabrin, Professor Emeritus, Ramapo College. Uh, and I've got some uh, some questions that maybe you can answer. Professor, welcome. Good to be with you, Gary. I've looked at, um, I looked at these uh, employment numbers, and I don't understand them. I am literally I, I don't understand how we could have the unemployment rate where we're at, all of these jobs that are allegedly there, we got all these major layoffs going on at the same time. Yeah. Um do, do you understand the numbers? Does it make does it seem to you that somebody's jiggering the numbers here? Well, remember, a lot of the, uh, all these surveys are based on surveys. They're not based on actual counts of people who are working. And if, uh, if I understand it correctly, part-time work is included in, in the uh, in the jobs number. So yeah. if people are taking on extra jobs or working two, three part-time jobs, uh, that looks like it's a, a robust uh, employment picture. But, uh, again, this is the problem with, quote, macroeconomics, looking at the big picture when economics is about the individual and how the individual and the family are doing in, in relationship to their needs. And um, uh, we know a lot of government employee employment has gone up during the Biden administration. So that's that's uh, one distortion of the numbers, because we know that government employees do not add to the well-being of the American people. That's just the fact that someone's just pushing paper in the state capital or in the federal bureaucracy. That doesn't add anything to the uh, to the goods and services that people actually want. They're not they're not creating any wealth. They're just redistributing it. All right. I, well, they're I'm, destroying wealth. <laughs> that's, the, that's the main problem. They're destroying wealth. Yeah, I agree. Uh, job creation actually declined sharply, according to ADP. Uh, the decline in jobs added by U.S. employers was revised uh, from a revised 158,000 in December to a paltry 107,000 in January was far sharper than economists had predicted. Yeah. I think we got some problems here. Did you watch? Did you watch 60 Minutes last week with Powell? 
No, I heard about it. I mean, he's, uh, from what I heard, he was giving a primer on what the Fed is doing. And what he didn't say, of course, is that we manipulate interest rates because we think we know how the economy should be structured. I mean, that's exactly what they do. And this is no different than what the Soviet Union tried to do with their Politburo in, in having central planning or uh, Cuba or uh, North Korea. This is, uh, or China even today, they, they do a lot of central planning through the Communist Party. And that's what the Federal Reserve does. They're a central planning agency. And I wish someone, in a, mem- a member of Congress, would stand up and say, we are a nation uh, supposedly built on free enterprise, and we don't need an institution created by the government that's in private hands that manipulates interest rates and gives us these boom-bust cycles. I wish somebody would get up and say that. How about this admission, though? He said, and I quote in this 60 Minutes piece, in the long run, the U.S. is on an unsustainable fiscal path. The federal government's on an unsustainable fiscal path, and that and that just means the debt is growing faster than the economy. Uh, what he's not saying is he's responsible, or at least his agency. Well, it's a combination of uh, deficits because of uncontrolled spending in Washington and the Federal Reserve being the enabler of it by by uh, buying up the bonds uh, that the federal government issues. And so you have the perfect storm of reckless policy that is responsible for other countries going down the tubes like Argentina and other countries after World War II. Uh, you name it. It's, ha- it's happened throughout South America. It's happened in Asia. It's happened in Europe. It's happened all over the world when governments spend more money than they collect in taxes and then the central bank comes in and buys up the debt by creating new money and and then you're off to the races with inflation. Uh, You've written a piece, The New Prohibitionists. Tell us what's uh, what's in this. And by the way, if you go to Murray Sabrin, that's S-A-B-R-I-N, murraysabrin.substack.com, you can can, uh, see the uh, pearly words of wisdom uh, that he puts in his columns. The new prohibitionists, tell me about them. Well, uh, if I recall now, I'm trying to uh, look, at, look at the article since I've been writing so much uh, privately and publicly. Uh, it's, it's the notion that you have to censor information because you don't think that information is uh, truthful. And the question is, uh, uh, let the people decide in their newspapers, in their magazines, on, on the Internet, what they think is reliable, good information. And that's why um, if you really want to have uh, uh, good information out there, people from both sides of the aisle should be debating the issue or, or three, four perspectives out there. I just wrote a, uh, an email to Brett Baer at Fox News who claims to have a fair and balanced network. And I said, where are all the critics of our foreign policy on your show or any other Fox show? Because if you're going to discuss foreign policy, you should discuss the pros and cons of foreign policy. Instead, you have the propaganda mills at Fox, at CNBC, at MSNBC, and CNN. Instead of giving us the news, and then if you want to have commentary, bring in people with two or three different perspectives. And unfortunately, governments are trying to get involved in, in saying, well, this is this information, and therefore we're not going to allow it. And this is a dangerous, slippery slope that we go down where the government supposedly is the arbiter of, of uh, the truth when we know that all we get out of Washington is lies, damn lies, and statistics. Boy, if uh, if that's not the truth. Um, all right. Uh, very quickly, because uh, I'm, I'm going to go into this in the next segment of the program. They, they had this uh, vote yesterday, and it had to, uh, it, it, it was tying together two seemingly 
uh, different issues. One of them being financing the war uh, that Israeli is, uh, that the Israelis are running and uh, the other one financing the war the Ukrainians are running. Uh, those two were tied together um, with something that, had, uh, you know, the borders uh, security thing. Uh, totally different uh, issues and, and should yeah. not have been uh, tied together. When it comes to funding Israel or the Ukraine or the Palestinians, should the government be making that decision for me, taking my money and sending it there? This is the crisis that we're facing. I spoke at a local Republican club the other day. They invited me to talk about what's going on in the country. And I said, we have a constitutional crisis. The federal government is not adhering to the constitutional Article 1, Section 8, or what money can be spent on. And foreign aid is certainly not a responsibility of the, foreign, of the federal government. We should not be picking, trying to pick winners and losers overseas. Let them settle their differences by themselves, and we should not get involved. Because if we get involved, it becomes a tripwire. And before you know it, there are some people who claim that we're already in World War III because uh, we're involved with Ukraine against Russia, uh, uh, and we're involved in the Mideast. And there are uh, people who are uh, allied with both sides either side of the issue. And so before you know it, we're going to be sending troops there like we did in Vietnam, like we did in um, uh, the Mideast uh, with the Iraq Korea. and Afghanistan. And, we're, and Korea, I mean, it doesn't end in the post-war period. So uh, the, the, the common sense, which is a deliberate position, is no foreign aid, no foreign tango alignments. This is what George Washington said in his farewell address. Um, I wasn't there, but uh, I read all about it. <laughs> but, uh, keep, Keep us out of foreign messes. That's how we got World War One and World War Two because the alliances on both sides gave us a hundred million people dead in World War One and World War Two. Do we really want to repeat this in the twenty first century? Professor Murray Sabrin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Look forward to it again. All right, take care. Can't go wrong with the professor. Pearly words of wisdom. Speaking of pearly words of wisdom, when we come back. We're going to play some, and you're, boy, you are going to be so impressed with just how sharp Joe Biden can be. That's next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It's uh, ten twenty-one, and uh, presidents—they uh, really uh, can affect uh, just with their commentary. I mean, they, people hang on to their pearly words of wisdom. And you want somebody in the White House who is capable of communicating. You want somebody who is able to um, articulate a message that, you know, lets people know what direction the country is going. Um, here now, uh, let's listen to the president. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy. What? I'm trying to get the uh, clip up. Here, here we go. Sorry. I'd like to head for the fence and try to. Uh, all right, we're... I'm sorry. That's our technical difficulty. All right, uh, so uh, here is uh, President Biden communicating to the country and to the world. There is some movement, and I don't want to... I don't want to... I'll maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the... Uh, it's making me crazy. I listened to this, and I've been <laughs> listening to his speech pattern for a while. 
And there's there's a familiar ring. I don't know if it's because I'm, I used to deal with alcoholics uh, or drunks. I don't know if it's um, somebody that's pharmacologically uh, is struggling. I I can't put my finger on it, but it seems like it's more than just old age. It seems like there's something chemically going on. When you listen to the president talk like this, what 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 do you think? How does it feel to you? What is your visceral response? Do we can we get the audio from yesterday, Brian? Yes, we, we can. Let we me found go grab it. that. Uh, we it had was audio. Much clearer. Yeah, we we had audio yesterday. yesterday. It was a little. Uh, it, it was a poor quality, but we've got the improved version of it now, where you can actually hear the president. This is just like a couple a day or two apart. These these two uh, conversations that uh, President Biden had. And I listen to them, and I think, I don't know, is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it just old age? Listen, to, this is just a day or so before. Right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. And it was in, it was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean from France, looked at me and said... Said, you know, what? Why? How, how long are you back for? All right, all right. It, it's painful to listen to. <laughs> it literally, it is. It's painful to listen to. When when you're listening to him, uh, Brian, and I want to know from listeners, literally, when you're listening to him, what are you thinking is going on? Do you think it's just old age and he's addled? Um, do you think it's maybe he's pharmacologically uh, impaired that they've put him on something to? I'm not sure because, I mean, even when he is on teleprompter, he gets lost. Uh, he just cannot think on his feet. And it's it's really frightening. I think to myself, complete imbecile. What uh, what is this guy doing in the White House? His moments of lucidity are few and far between. And the moment he the moment he begins to extemporize, he's either inventing something or lying about something or literally at a loss to complete his own sentences. Well, it's a good thing that Corrine Jean-Pierre can yeah. explain his... Uh... Yeah, listen to this dismissal uh, by Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre when asked about the president... Uh, apparently having a seance with Mitterrand. How is President Biden ever going to convince the three-quarters of voters who are worried about his physical and mental health that he is okay, even though in Las Vegas he told a story about recently talking to a French president who died in 1996? I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole with you, what? sir. What is We're the gonna rabbit go. hole? Go ahead. He said go he ahead. talked to Mitterrand. Go ahead. In you saw the president in Vegas, in California. You've seen the president in South Carolina. You saw him in Mich Michigan. I'll just leave it there. Go ahead. Yeah, that's going to leave it there. Yeah, rather than respond <laughs> to a legitimate question about the mental capacity of of the uh, president, I'm just not going to respond to that. It's 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 <laughs> so beneath me. That's a rabbit hole that we're not going down. It's a problem. So when you listen to Biden, what are you thinking? 
because uh, I'm thinking some some kind of pharma, pharmacological input here. See, they've got them on something. And I think he's completely addled. I can't I can't even stand to watch him walk. Have you watched him walk from Marine One toward the yes. White House? It's such a slow, painful. Shuffle. It's a painful uh, gait, and it it it's just he's a doddering old guy. Being a doddering old man is not reason enough to say he shouldn't be president. But I think that mental acuity, that that constant inability to stay on topic, it's a problem. Let me go to uh, let me go to Fordland and, and have a chat with Tony. Tony, when you're listening to the president, what are you thinking? I am uh, hearing my father, who died last May at the end of last May, from the same thing. Parkinson's. He could start a conversation. He'd be with you. Two seconds later, he'd look at you and say, "So where are you from?" As if he didn't know you. So I mean, they gave him some medication for a while, and he would have moments of clarity. You know, like about 45 minutes after the pill was taken, he would be good for about an hour and a half. And then he would start to slip again. Now, Joe has taken a few falls. We all know this. He's fallen quite a bit. My father took a fall when he was 79, when he, when he, uh, he hit his head. When he was 80, you could see the differences. When he turned 81, he sounded just like Joe. So I think it's just advanced stage. And they hit him with the dope when he goes out on the speech. But it's not taken like it used to. He's not holding like it used to. So I think he's got an immunity to the dope they're giving him to keep him kind of lucid. But uh, this is what happens when you get to that age. It's just pretty. Now, everyone, well, not always. I know someone that's 85. And yeah, that's nice. Those are rarities in the, uh, in the anomaly there. So I would say that we need to learn from this. And, yes, I do espouse for ageism, especially when it comes to public office. So, if you're over 65, you need not apply. All That's right. All I got. Y'all have a great day. Tony, thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. It, it, I'm just telling you, it's it's weird. Uh, it, I, I think it, it is, I, I think he is pharmacologically uh, being held up. All right, listen, uh, coming up, I always tell you about the Epic Times. In fact, I give you these stories that, that nobody else is covering. Uh, and we've got the Epic Times coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to have Darlene Sanchez on. Uh, and she's going to chat about the border. She, uh, Her story is so new, I'm not even sure that it's out yet. Uh, so you're getting, you're getting this uh, really early on. Uh, the U.S. is funding its own invasion at its southern border. How are they doing that? I'll bet you're wondering, because actually you're funding it, because the government has no money of its own. It only has the money it takes from you. Uh, under the Biden administration, uh, uh, funding uh, to the United Nations migration arm has more than doubled. We'll tell you how much. We'll do all of that with Darlene Sanchez next on The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It's 1035. Glad to have you with us. And it is uh, the uh, Epic Times uh, time slot. They are with us. It, actually, Darlene Sanchez is with us. And 
Darlene, you've been looking at uh, how we're we're funding this this influx of people from the south of the border. How's that? Yes. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me. Um, absolutely. So what's happening is that the U.S. is bankrolling basically its own invasion. I mean, where that information is coming from, you know, if you look at the government uh, spending, there's databases out there that you can, that anyone can look at, actually. And also by talking with people who have been looking at this issue, such as Todd uh, Benzman, he's with the Center for Migration Studies. Um, and what's happening is taxpayer funding or money is going from the United States to the, to the United Nations. And the United Nations has been turning around and giving money to migrants on their way to the United States southern border, in a nutshell. <laughs> it belongs in a nutshell. Well, how are they giving them the money, Darlene? Are they, are they literally going down there and, and handing out cash, or are they buying material? How, how are they... How are they doing this? What's the mechanism? Yes, yes, absolutely. There's there's a couple ways mainly that they're doing this, and some of it is through like debit cards, you know, cash rewards, um, and also an aid. They're giving them shelter. They're giving them food, water, uh, and transportation in some situations as well. So yeah. all that's being funded in part by taxpayer dollars because the U.S. of course is giving. Um, the main uh, arm of the U.N. Uh, immigration um, service, I guess, is what you would call it, um, you know, is the um, IOM. And what they're doing is that's the International Organization for Migration. And over the past couple years, under the, under the Biden administration, for example, the IOM funding has skyrocketed to $1.3 billion. Wait a minute. That, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Darlene. They're spending one point three billion, or we're giving them one point three billion. In other words, is under it? The, go ahead. Under the Biden administration, we, meaning the U.S. taxpayers, of course, are giving the IOM, which is the migration arm of the United Nations, one point three billion dollars. This was as of twenty twenty three, and that's about double what it was under the Trump administration. Uh, the U.S. has always given money to the IOM, okay, for, for years. But it has skyrocketed under Biden. And not all of that money goes to, uh, I guess, the, you know, the Central American and um, South American migration uh, that's happening now. It goes to migration all over the world. And I think what people need to understand is the U.N. is all for mass migration, that is part, I mean, you can look at the documents and uh, a recent uh, uh, appeal came out for even more money to help fund the migrant crisis. So, I mean, this is, it's a cottage industry. I, I think people really need to understand that. It, it's a cottage industry and it's impacting the world. And the UN is part of that, um, part of the players that are doing that. So we're paying we're compelled to pay taxes by the government uh otherwise they come after us uh and and uh, so they take that money and they give it to these people who are coming across the border in droves literally underwriting their trip and then we wonder why we've got so many people suddenly surging at the border it's 
And, yes, and if that's, that's and if and if that's not enough, Darlene, uh, when they get to sanctuary cities and states, uh, we pay for their health care, their food, their housing, their uh, the education for their children. Uh, New York is literally giving them uh, 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 debit cards because they have to promise they'll only spend the money on food. Um, and 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 we wonder why these people are coming here. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it's what Mr. Benzman, again, with the Center for Migration Studies, told me when I spoke with him was that, you know, it's a draw. Everybody knows that. You know, what happens is these people, they make it through this arduous journey to, uh, you know, cross into the United States illegally on the southern border. Um, then they send, you know, selfies of themselves, uh, you know, in the U.S., look, I made it. And that goes back to their friends who then say, well, you know, if you can do that, so can I. And, you know, with the understanding that they're going to get across the southern border, they're going to get help along the way. Um, you know, what Mr. Benson says is, of course, they're going to come because, you know, where before they may not have. You know, they might have had some skepticism and might have worried about this journey. Where am I going to get money, you know, if I get robbed? Where am I going to get, you know, food? Um, who's going to help me if I get sick? Well, now they have these stations, UN stations, set up along the, the migration routes in Central and uh, mainly in, in Central America um, and into Mexico as well that will help these migrants. Um, and, you know, Mr. Benson said that whenever he went down into Mexico as early as 2021, um, he interviewed migrants and was there standing there um, at a UN uh, facilitated station. Um, and they were getting $800 a month on um, debit cards. <laughs> oh, it's crazy making. Darlene, is, is the, are all the details of this story up at the Epic Times right now or is it coming out soon? Yeah, Gary, this is coming out soon. We expect it to be out um, this week, sometime later in this week. Um, so, yeah, this is based on research I've been doing and, like I said, interviews I've been doing. Um, and, and it really is eye-opening to see how much money is being poured into this entire endeavor, you know, across the world. But, of course, the most disturbing part is that, you know, the U.S. taxpayers, we're paying for it as well. And um, there is some legislation out there. There is some pushback from uh, Republic Republican uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Um, with the you know with a focus now on the border, it's, it's so acute right now the problem that you know they're hoping that this bill they they put up in the past didn't get anywhere. They're hoping it might get some traction now. Uh, I can't wait to get all the details and read it. Uh, you can, too. Epic Times, EPOC, like Epoch, uh, except they don't know how to pronounce it. Darlene, thank you so much for the hard work, and I look forward to getting that column. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. I've got a question. I, I seriously, seriously, I do not understand why we're funding the United Nations. I view them as a, not just a useless organization, but I think an anti-American organization. And I wonder why the politicians in Washington, D.C. don't get it. Why is it the Democrats and Republicans don't get it? Do, do, they, do they think there is some positive that comes from the United Nations? I don't know. Do you see anything positive? coming from the United Nations.
Would you be in favor of defunding the United Nations? Would you be in favor of telling them, pack your bags, get the hell out? I, I cannot, I cannot understand how they have the right to do this. Uh, we chatted about this uh, in a similar vein uh, a couple a couple of weeks ago, but I just, I think most Americans don't see much value in the United Nations, but we keep taking our, you know, letting them take our money and give it to them. And it seems to me they're largely an anti-American group. Yeah, in uh, 2021, the U.S. government contributed almost, are you ready for this, $12.5 billion. Yeah, it, it's, it's designed to be funded in a socialist way. Uh, the, the countries that have the most money pay the most money. So we're the number one contributors. I, <laughs> I'm betting that most people wish that would damn thing would go away. I, I just don't think, I don't think the politicians in Washington quite get it. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll chat about that. But also, uh, Brian and I are thinking of setting up a GoFundMe account uh, for some people living in abject poverty. Uh, we'd like to see uh, how much you'd be encouraged to donate. That's next on The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It's uh, 10 to 11. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Brian and I were were feeling sorry for, uh, for some folks, uh, and we were thinking of setting up a GoFundMe account because, well, I would much rather we personally donate then have the government take money from you and maybe you can't afford it so they can donate. We believe in private charity. We were not aware, in all honesty, Brian, you and I were not aware about no, the, I wasn't. the, the no. poverty uh, yeah. in, in these areas. But it, it apparently exists and in pretty sufficient numbers. So uh, we thought, well, we'll offer you up an opportunity. We'll start, if you're in, you know, in, in favor, we'll, we'll start a GoFundMe uh, for... Residents of these areas uh, around the country, especially in the Northeast, and let me tell you how we 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 got uh, you know, turned on to this. How we discovered about all this abject poverty. The federal government has a plan, and it is to put up charging stations in areas of the country where uh, you know the the. the Poverty is rampant. Poverty is rampant. Yeah, and they, and they can't afford to to build these things because um, you you want uh, charging stations uh, for people uh, who can't afford to buy the cars that need to be charged. Right. So, and if we give enough, they can purchase those cars too. Yeah, that's you know I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so they have decided if you're in a poor area, a lot of poverty. That's where the money will go to build the charging stations. And that's how we discovered about the poverty-stricken areas of Montauk and Fisher Island uh, in New York and uh, Martha's Vineyard. Oh, that's a bad uh, area. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they don't even want to go out at night there. I that's, know. Uh, Nantucket. Terrible. Yeah. Um, so they are low income, apparently. I didn't know this until I, I read this article. Uh, about how they're they're going to fund EV chargers there, um, but I thought you know if there is so much poverty there, Brian, we should start up a GoFundMe mm -hmm. account, yeah, uh, for the residents of uh, uh, of those areas. 
I mean, Martha's Vineyard, those poor bastards. I mean, literally, they're struggling. <laughs> they, they're kids. They must be sleeping on the streets. Terrible. So, um, how much are you, are you going to give? Uh, I'm going to, like, step up with 10 bucks. Ten, ten, ten dollars. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going all in today. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good. I was, uh, I was. Um, now I'm feeling a little cheap because uh, I was. Well, I was thinking of going in for five. Oh, and, and now you're upstaging me, and I'm the host <laughs> of the show. Oh boy, those poor people. Oh, I. Can, can you imagine living on the ocean? No, uh, no. It, Don't even describe been, it to me because it makes me want to get sick. <laughs> you're, you're just I sad. would never want to be in that kind of position. You know, I would like to see what the average price is of of a house. Um, in let's just say Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I'm. We can go to like Realtor.com or one of those places. And find out what the average price is. I imagine, Brian, those houses are pretty inexpensive. I'm thinking probably... Let's see, the median... Uh, oh, this must be a mistake. What? What? The median price of a home in Martha's Vineyard today is 2.3 M. I don't know. 2.3 sure. M. M. What's that M mean? Well, ordinarily, I would think the average Minusculely. price is, is, is millions, but okay. apparently... Uh, if the federal government sees the poverty there, that, that can't be right. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like, this can't be right. I'll I'll search another source. Yeah, uh, see <laughs> see what else you can find. Uh, maybe Nantucket in uh, Massachusetts. I don't know. This is so out of control. This is so crazy. It, it's, in, it's absolutely insane. And the uh, Biden- here's a house in Martha's Vineyard for around 900 900- K, whatever that is, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, that's uh, just shy of a million. That's uh, like nine hundred thousand. Oh. That must be in. That must be in the poverty. <laughs> that's the poverty <laughs> section. <laughs> that's that's for the low income people from the rest of the of the island drive by there and they kind of hold their nose up. Like, oh, God. Oh, but they have boy. charging stations. Yes, yes. Uh, the Biden administration, by the way, is being sued. Because apparently they're trying to cover up how much coordination uh, John Kerry and his group had with Echo, uh, with uh, these global warming groups. So uh, we'll we'll try and cover that uh, a little bit in the next hour. Uh, but there are some uh, very interesting stories about uh, these battery-powered cars now. Uh, the farce, they say, has reached a shambolic new low. I don't doubt it. And I think the handwriting is on the wall. You know, I feel sorry for some companies uh, like uh, uh, Stellantis that owns uh, Dodge and Chrysler. Because apparently they're going all in. The guys uh, and engineers who gave us the Hellcat and Hellcat Red Eye. Giving us uh, Dodge Challengers with a thousand plus horsepower with uh, supercharged they went to the I'll tell you how extreme it is for those of you who don't know about cars an engine is just a, basically a pump it's an air pump and the colder air is when it goes into the engine uh, the more dense it is the more powerful the explosion the the, the the drives the cylinders 
they went to the extreme of diverting air conditioning to chill the charge going into the engine to make that air more dense. I mean, this is some brilliant engineering. Those cars had more horsepower and torque than they could use to hook up. You'd, you'd, you'd stop on the gas and all you do is burn up the tires. Those same people are now giving up, for the most part, the internal combustion engine. And they're going all in on these battery-powered cars. There is one exception, and I think it's a get-out-of-jail card. It looks like they're keeping a six-cylinder engine at Stellantis for Dodge and Chrysler. And I'm thinking that's just in case these battery-powered cars don't take off. Now, why wouldn't they? Because uh, nobody wants them. Oh, no. Just saying. I'm Ford sure you're wrong. can't give them away. GM can't give them away. Uh, Mercedes can't give them away. Uh, Hertz has quit uh, uh, stocking them. Nobody wants them. They're just useless to most of us. They they apparently could not pound that square peg into the round hole that is America's love of, of uh, the automobile. So, you know, one, one good thing about having the Republicans uh, back in the White House is that maybe they will cancel all of this crap and end the madness. The problem, however, is that GM, Ford, Chrysler, um, all of these auto manufacturers have, because of big government, sunk tens of billions of dollars into creating battery-powered cars that are not going to take over the marketplace. So, once again, government regulations, and it really depends on who's in the White House, uh, subject the industry, whether it's the oil industry, the automobile industry, whatever it is, to the vicissitudes of the White House. So, sink a bunch of money into building a pipeline and then change administrations and have the money, you know, and have it killed. It's like wasted billions. Sink a bunch of money into battery-powered cars, change of administration, and it's no longer necessary. They're killing the economy. They're killing the automobile industry. By the way, the unions, the automobile unions are now threatening automobile manufacturers in the South. Try and cover that next on the Gary Nolan Show, The Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show 